Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. We're the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. In each podcast, Dan and I interview the authors of one of the essays we've published. Here today is Joel Alicia, a lawyer for Cooper and Kirk, a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, and the author of a fantastic essay in our spring 2015 issue called Originalism and the Rule of the Dead. Joel, welcome. Thank you. All right, Joel, uh, just to start off with, um, originalism in general, um, it's a word that comes up a lot in debates, uh, legal issues, Supreme Court cases, uh, but we feel like it's not always defined that well in public debates. Uh, could you just give us kind of a succinct definition of what originalism actually is um, and why you're so interested in it um, as someone who studies this? Sure. I think one of the reasons it's not often defined in these debates is because there are so many different definitions of originalism, both in the, on the scholarly side and popularly. But I think kind of a succinct definition would be just be to say that modern-day interpreters are bound by the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, and that kind of capacious definition allows for all sorts of variants to, to come in with it. Um, in terms of why I'm interested in it, I think originalism gets at some of the most foundational questions of constitutional law and of American political theory. Uh, makes me think of uh, the way that Robert Bork started his uh, 1971 a law review article that kind of launched originalism where he asked, when is authority legitimate? That question really is at the foundation of much of constitutional theory, hmm. and originalism is very much bound up in that question. I've always found that interesting. Hmm. You write in your essay that in the span of only about a decade, starting in the 1970s, origina originalism established itself as a formidable intellectual movement with, quote, considerable staying power. What conditions in the legal community and on the Supreme Court helped with the rise of originalism, and how did it become so formidable so quickly? Sure. So I think that most accounts of originalism would date its emergence in the modern era to the early 70s. Mm. And it's really in response to a lot of the rulings from the Warren and then early on in the Burger Court. Uh, and Bork's 1971 Indiana Law Journal article, Neutral Principles and Some First Amendment Problems, is often viewed as sort of the starting point of the modern originalist story. Uh, and it's, that's an interesting starting point because that article does not itself actually lay out a theory of originalism, but it starts asking some of the questions that lead to uh, originalism's emergence and and starts putting forward a few ideas that become key to originalism later on. Um, but the, the 70s are uh, the, a period of, of formation for originalism, and it really comes into its own in the 80s. So mm -hmm. in, in the 70s, you have Bork writing. You had Justice, uh, then Justice, and he was not yet Chief Justice. Justice William Rehnquist deliver a uh, lecture in 1975, or at least that's when his article came out. Uh, called the idea of a living constitution or the notion of a living constitution in which he attacks living constitutionalism. Doesn't so much put forward originalism as the alternative, uh, but again, is starting to make gestures toward that. Um, and Raul Berger, who's a professor at Harvard at the time, comes out with an important uh, book in the late 1970s, Government by Judiciary, uh, in which he discusses the original meaning of 
the Constitution and start to put forward some both historical and theoretical arguments along those lines. Uh, so those are those are the the initial rumblings, uh, and that's the public face of it. Privately, many of these individuals um, are ha are friends or acquaintances and are having conversations with each other uh, and developing these ideas. So future Justice Scalia, uh, future Judge Bork, um, uh, some of the great intellectuals of the conservative legal movement in the 80s and 90s knew each other in the 70s and were already having conversations about some of the ideas that would lead to originalism in the 80s. And Joel, you mentioned uh, Justice Rehnquist pushing back against the living Constitution. Um, is it fair to say that originalism arose in response to that, or is, it, is there a different way or a better way to look at it? In response to? To the living Constitution to idea living or constitution. notion of, yeah. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say to say that that's true at a general level in that originalism emerges as a response to the Warren Court and the uh, the Burger Court in its in its initial stages and the many of the rulings that were attacked by originalists were paradigmatic living constitutionalist decisions and I think that's that's shown by Justice Ren then Justice Rehnquist's speech. Like, wh what motivates him to really come out swinging in the mid-70s? It's living constitutionalism. It's not so much the affirmative idea of originalism. It's what he thinks is going wrong. Uh, and later on, the idea of what to do to make it right starts right. to develop. And going forward from there, you mentioned that it played a significant role in the Reagan administration as well. Um, would you talk a bit about that, how some of these theoretical ideas began to take concrete effect? That's right, and that really is unusual for a, a Justice Department or a, you know, an administration, a presidential administration, to take such an active role in an academic debate about the Constitution. But that is what happened in the Reagan administration, especially once Ed Meese became Attorney General. Um, when, when he became Attorney General in Reagan's second term, he really adopted originalism uh, as the the theory of the uh, Constitution that the Justice Department would put forward. Uh, and there was certainly some of that in the first term as well. I don't want to downplay that. But uh, Mies is a key figure because he uh, sets the tone for the Justice Department in the second term by making originalism such a big part of his public persona. He delivers a series of speeches in the mid-'80s uh, in which he puts forward originalism, defends it, uh, attacks the court's decisions that depart from the original meaning of the Constitution, uh, and really uh, just challenges a lot of the legal establishment to rethink how it approaches the Constitution. Uh, and it, it was one thing for some of these academics to be making these arguments in law review articles. It was quite another thing for the Attorney General of the United States to embrace those arguments uh, and say this is going to guide Justice Department views on the Constitution. Uh, and then, of course, the, the nominations of uh, various judges who, who would later become real titans of the conservative legal movement, like future Justice Scalia, mm -hmm. Judge Frank Easterbrook, uh, uh, Judge Robert Bork. I mean, th these people ended up being uh, real intellectual uh, uh, 
fathers of originalism and the conservative legal movement. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like that um, implementing philosophy and ideas into actual policies is a messy process, but this seems like one example where it worked quite well. Is that fair to say, you think? Yes. I mean, it, the as I said, it, it's just so unusual to mm. see something like this, to see... A sea change like that. Yeah, a sea change where what's happening in academia merges with a presidential administration and a, a broader political movement to bring an idea about the Constitution to the fore in mm -hmm. a way that it had not before. That, that, that is just uh, not something that's happened very often in our history. Also, and so the title of your piece is it intriguing. It's Originalism and the Rule of the Dead. Uh, so what do you mean by that phrase? It's really catchy. And then also, later in your piece, you talk about the dead hand argument as, as critics uh, formulated it. Uh, what are those two things? Right, and those two things are, are, of course, related in that the dead hand argument, just to uh, explain it very briefly, is that those who uh, are dead have no authority over the living. So the past cannot bind the present. Only those who are living today really have authority to govern uh, the present. And that intuition, uh, uh, or, or really it's fleshed out as a philosophical argument, um, is one that rejects the rule of the dead, the dead having any authority. Uh, so th the title of my piece reflected the argument of the essay, which is to defend the authority of the past, to defend the authority of the dead uh, over those living today. And that's not to say that we have some sort of uh, mystical or bizarre um, devotion to <laughs> ancestor worship or something. It's not that. It's more <laughs> to say that uh, society is, uh, as Burke said, an intergenerational partnership of the living, the dead, and those to be born. It necessarily presupposes society, necessarily presupposes uh, mutual obligations and duties among those uh, who are past and those who are present and those who are to come. And if you sever those and pretend that we're all just living uh, in the present independent of any obligations to, to those who came before us, you really attack the foundation not only of society but of law. Law cannot mm -hmm. exist um, unless you recognize those ties that bind generations. Um, in relation to that, could you tell us a bit about um, law professor Paul Brest's 1980 critique of originalism in a piece titled The Misconceived Quest for the Original Understanding? Right, so that article is the first major uh, response to the growth of originalism. As I said, originalism was uh, building up during the 70s, and then Paul Brest's article uh, is the first counterpunch mm -hmm. that really sets off the academic debates about originalism. And it's an extraordinary piece for many reasons, uh, but one of them is that he, he really sets down uh, a lot of the debate, a lot of the arguments against originalism that would endure for decades thereafter. Um, it's a very far-sighted piece in that yeah. regard. And one of the arguments he makes, although he doesn't spend much time on it, he kind of just says it in, mm -hmm. in passing, is this dead hand argument. Mm -hmm. He also argued, counter to what you mentioned, that there is no justification for binding the present to the compromises of another age. And actually, law professor David Strauss, who is also no originalist, um, noted that Thomas Jefferson said the earth belongs to the living and called the dead hand argument the most fundamental problem with originalism. 
Would you talk to us a bit about the impact that those writings have had on debates surrounding originalism? I, I certainly think that the dead hand argument represents an ongoing uh, threat to the rule of law uh, because it is so appealing to so many people. Mm -hmm. it, it has a lot of intuitive uh, appeal to people to say, well, of course I'm not, I'm not governed by those who are dead, those who came before me, they don't make the decisions for me. Um, and that intuition leads people to reject originalism uh, probably more than I think any other argument that's made against originalism. Uh, but as I try to argue in the piece, if you accept the dead hand argument, you're not just rejecting originalism, you really are rejecting a philosophical premise of written law in general. And so Joel, a lot of things you're talking about in terms of um, respecting the rule of the past, um, the obligations and duties that that confers on those living in the present, uh, sounds like conservatism a lot. Um, so can you talk about why conservatives sort of embraced originalism as a legal philosophy, some of the shared assumptions between those two? I would first say that originalism from the start has been uh, a broader movement than just philosophical conservatives. Uh, there are a lot of libertarians who uh, subscribe to originalism. There are a lot of those who are not on the right side of the political philosophical spectrum at all who subscribe to originalism, and originalism tends to uh, lead to results that, uh, or I shouldn't say tends to, I should just say it can lead to results that are very much at odds with what somebody who is philosophically conservative might mm -hmm. choose as a policy matter. So I, I wanna just at the beginning, at the top, say um, the relationship here is not a results-driven one, and it's not one in which um, only philosophical conservatives would embrace originalism. Sure. That being said, I don't think it's at all a mistake or a, uh, or a pure coincidence that people who are philosophically conservative would tend to find originalism's philosophical premises appealing. And conversely, that those who are uh, more of a philosophical progressive bent would be repelled by originalism's philosophical premises because there is a great kinship, I think, between philosophical conservatism and originalism. And let me just again very quickly pause to say, um, when I say philosophical conservatism, I'm not talking here about the Republican Party, right? It right. is not a partisan or political thing. It's really um, a, a way of viewing society, a way in which you approach epistemological questions, uh, a way in which you approach your relationship to other generations. Um, that sort of philosophical conservative that's probably best captured by Edmund Burke's mm -hmm. Reflections on the Revolution in France is what I mean when I say that there's a relationship there between philosophical conservatism and originalism. Uh, and I think that originalism, uh, at its most basic level, says that current interpreters have to obey the dictates of the past. They have to, they are bound by what a prior generation, uh, not thought, but how they understood the language uh, that was set down. And that uh, commitment, that binding uh, uh, principle of originalism is one that makes a lot of sense to a philosophical conservative who is, who is comfortable with the idea of one generation having authority over the next and uh, having mutual obligations uh, it's one that is uh, 
anathema to a philosophical progressive. Absolutely. And interestingly, um, in terms of packaging, I could see originalism being a tough sell to people who value freedom in some of the interpretations of that word, either maybe some progressives who value sort of a radical individualism and some on the right who, who might embrace a radical individualism of their own. You mentioned the intuitive appeal of, of anti-originalism. Um, and it's, it's interesting that it is as popular as it is, considering the, the, the sort of inherent appeal of anti-originalists. I think that's right. And uh, to your point, from the beginning, there has been uh, a, a group of libertarian scholars in the conservative legal movement more broadly that have not embraced originalism and have attacked it you know, from the 80s onwards. Um, so there, there certainly is uh, a, an element of originalism that chafes against the, the desires of those living today because mm -hmm. it, by its nature, constrains your choices. It says, you know, you are not going to just do whatever you want. Uh, there are limits to what you can do in the present, unless you go through the, you know, the proper process of uh, amending the Constitution. But even that process, right, is a limitation on the, the present uh, and on the living. So you're right that the, there is a, uh, it, it is in some ways remarkable the way in which originalism has flourished, notwithstanding the fact that it actually does impose significant limitations on what those living today would be able to right. do. Right. And yeah, kind of going off that, Joel, uh, we're going to read a, qu a quote from your piece that we really liked. Um, quote, we must submit to the commands of the dead in order to govern ourselves. And in order to submit, we must understand those commands according to their original meaning. It would be farcical to claim that we are being obedient to a rule if we arrogated to ourselves the power to change the meaning of that rule. It would be tantamount to telling past generations, we will obey your laws so long as they mean what we say they mean. And so you're kind of suggesting there that um, it's essential to self-government uh, that we do obey the, the rule of the dead. Um, and also you mentioned things about popular sovereignty, which we'd like you to address that as well. But talk a little bit about that quote and how it's important to self-government. Well, if there are, if the obligations of uh, the living to the dead and vice versa are real, and if you really do have uh, an intergenerational partnership that undergirds society and undergirds a system of written law, then I think it's just a, a an implication of that that you would understand the written law that you are being bound by from the past as it was understood by the past. Because otherwise, as I said in that piece, uh, it, it would be to make a mockery of the commitment itself, you know, to say I'm, I am bound by the past only insofar as I interpret it to mean what I want. It's, well, okay, then you're not really bound by anything. <laughs> um, you're, you might as well just reject the, the premise instead of uh, mocking the premise. <clears throat> Moving on a little bit, um, early critics of originalism argued that it created confusion about whether to follow the original intentions of the founders or the original meaning of the constitutional text. This kind of thinking also led to disagreements among originalists themselves. And you talked a little bit about how the late Justice Antonin Scalia and others helped resolve that debate and that tension. Would you mind uh, talking about that? So th that was a major uh, issue in originalism, especially in the 80s, uh, the question of what, what do we mean by the original meaning of the Constitution? What are we looking for? Uh, and early originalism, especially in the 70s and 80s, 
was drawn to the idea of original intent. And by that, we mean looking at what did the founders subjectively kind of understand to be the meaning of the Constitution, which is different from the what came to be called the original public meaning of the Constitution, which is instead focused on what do these words mean based on uh, linguistic conventions at the time, the historical meaning of these words, quite apart from what the individual who participated in writing or ratifying these words subjectively thought the implications of those words would be or what, mm. you know, what, uh, how they understood those principles uh, idiosyncratically. Uh, that's not what we really care about. What we care about is um, when the Constitution uses certain words, how were those understood by the public as a general matter? Now, that, that difference uh, really comes to the fore in the mid-'80s because some of these early critics of originalism were leveling uh, powerful critiques of what comes to be called intentionalism, original intent. Uh, for example, pointing out some epistemological problems with how do you understand, how do you even understand the idea of a collective intent of, of disparate uh, bodies that were ratifying the Constitution at the founding? Um, what, is, you know, what does it mean to say that uh, they subjectively understood the Constitution in this way, uh, especially if you can put forward evidence that they themselves did not intend for the Constitution to be understood that way? Mm -hmm. uh, that was a major critique leveled by a professor called H. Jefferson Powell at the time. Uh, against intentionalism, that that the founding generation themselves did not intend their intentions to guide constitutional interpretation. Uh, so in response to a lot of these sort of conceptual problems, uh, Justice Scalia played a pivotal role in reorienting originalism toward the original public meaning approach that I outlined earlier, which is focused more on the words of the Constitution rather than the in intentions of the founders. So in some way, the criticisms helped to improve originalism as a theory. If you think that original intent was misguided, then yes, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, there remain a few original intent scholars who defend that that old regime um, and uh, are quite prominent uh, and, and and obviously well respected. So it's it it's it remains a live debate within originalism, and some of this uh, carries over into debates about statutory interpretation because uh, there's also a a debate in the statutory realm about the idea of collective intentions um, versus just examining the, the meaning of the text as understood. Right. Right. Yeah, and you mentioned one of the issues is um, how to determine whose intent matters. It could be, as Scalia noted, could be the original draftsman or could be people at the Constitutional Convention. Um, it could have been a whole slew of people whose intentions may have mattered. That's right, and, and that, uh, th that problem becomes less of a problem if what you're just looking at is what do you, what did these words mean? Mm -hmm. Because then you're just looking at um, uh, ob sources that would give you insight into objective understandings of what the words, uh, how they were understood by that generation, not just uh, how they were understood by the people at the Constitutional Convention or uh, in the ratifying conventions. That is obviously important data. It's helpful to know. That's useful in, in figuring out what the understanding at the time was, uh, but... Uh, that person would not have any, you know, 
special claim to binding all of us to their subjective, you know, idiosyncratic understanding. Right, absolutely. No future psychologists looking into the past. Right. I think I've heard before that uh, some originalists are big fans of dictionaries from like the late 1700s because it was – what were the words that those who were writing the Constitution, what were they familiar – what was the culture familiar with? Is that something you've experienced before? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, th if what you care about is the meaning of the words at, at the time, then dictionaries will play an important role in that, right? Because that, that is the whole purpose of a dictionary is to say this is what this word means. And uh, if you uh, can find a, a you know, reputable dictionary at the time uh, that, that addresses the controversy uh, at issue by addressing a, a key word or phrase at issue, that can be enormously helpful. Um, it, it's probably rarely going to be dispositive, but it will, but it will often be uh, very important. And go back to Scalia. Uh, you include a, a clue to quote from his book, A Matter of Interpretation. I uh, quote, What I look for in the Constitution is precisely what I look for in a statute, the original meaning of the text, not what the original draftsman intended. So kind of what we've been talking about. And so out of that develops textualism. Can you talk a bit about textualism and how that helped answer some of the criticisms uh, to originalism? Right. So what's fascinating about the growth of originalism in the 70s and 80s is that it's happening in parallel with the rise of textualism. And there are very similar dynamics at work here as these two scholarly movements um, uh, come about in that just as originalism is in many ways uh, a response to the living constitutionalism of uh, the, the Warren Court and the Berger Court, textualism emerges as a response to the statutory interpretation decisions of that same era that were very much focused on legislative history. Uh, and by that, we mean things like committee reports, statements on the floor of the House or the Senate. And what the Supreme Court was doing a lot of during the 60s and 70s, especially during that era, was uh, looking to these statements and saying, oh, well, this floor sponsor said this is what the statute means, so that's what it means, and we're just going to run with that without actually analyzing what the text really says, and mm -hmm. uh, or at the, if they, insofar as they do analyze it, giving it secondary importance to these, the, to this legislative history, and that is uh, a an approach that was firmly rejected by textualism. Textualism emerged as as a critique of that and saying. No, what we really care about is what do these words mean? And there are a lot of reasons for that, and there have been you know, numerous justifications for textualism over the years, but uh, one of the major justifications that emerged early on was just to say these words are what were made law. The subjective intentions of the, the floor sponsor and how he interpreted those words, that was not necessarily agreed to sure. in the statute. The sta all we know that everyone voted on and agreed on were these words. And if these words mean something different than what the sponsor thought they meant, well, that's just too bad for the sponsor <laughs> uh, because the Constitution sets forth what the process is to make laws and his thoughts were not made into law. That was uh, kind of the uh, an early uh, uh, instinct behind textualism. Uh, but you can see then how that idea of interpreting statutes would pretty easily carry over into how you would interpret the Constitution and how that would then lead someone like Justice Scalia, who saw statutes in the Constitution as being interpreted 
in pretty much the same way mm -hmm. uh, to reject intentionalism, original intent, and focus on the original public meaning of the text. Exactly. It's a very, it, it's a harmonization of constitutional interpretation and statutory interpretation. You mentioned that textualism helped answer some of the dead hand critics, but um, you also noted that it opened paths for quote, novel forms of originalism that internalize the basic assumptions of living constitutionalism and are quote, one step away from becoming what has always been considered originalism's intellectual adversary. Um, can you talk about some of those contemporary challenges to originalism? Sure, so when I say it opened the door, I, I just mean that if you no longer think you're bound by what the founders subjectively understood, uh, subjectively thought the, the Constitution uh, uh, meant or how it would uh, how it would be applied to any particular circumstance. Those are slightly different things, but um, uh, let's just you know, avoid that for now, <laughs> sure. those distinctions. Um, <laughs> then uh, what you're opening, the, you're opening up a possibility that the meaning of the text could be quite different than what the founders um, might have subjectively understood it to mm -hmm. mean. Um, those particular individuals might have subjectively understood it to mean. You know, you could you could put into words something that has a, a, a different meaning. Now, you would not necessarily expect there to be a huge gulf between those two, because obviously, if you're uh, writing down the principles that you've got in mind, you would think that you would choose words that would enact those principles, sure. right? Um, so, to, to some extent, this distinction um, can be really uh, over, overblown. Um, but my, my point was simply to say, once you acknowledge that there is a distinction between those two things, mm -hmm. if you were to have a view of, of the original meaning of the text that says, actually, the text is very vague. It actually doesn't say a whole lot and resolve very much then if you're not appealing to the intentions of those who enacted it and how they would necessarily think about a problem, uh, then it, it leaves a lot of open space as mm -hmm. to, well, then what do you do uh, if, if, if the text itself doesn't supply very much meaning? And there are a lot of uh, theorists in the last decade or so who have come forward with theories of what they claim are theories of originalism to uh, answer that question, and they answer it uh, in ways that, in my view, uh, come close to, and in some cases do, collapse the distinction between originalism and living constitutionalism. Right. And let's let's talk about a couple of those thinkers um, who you feel are novel forms of originalism, but actually could be on the road to, to living constitutionalism. Uh, first, uh, Georgetown professor Randy Barnett. Uh, so he has sort of a more individualist conception of popular sovereignty uh, than most other originalists do. Uh, could you talk a bit about that and how you differ from that view? So, Professor Barnett, uh, who is tremendously influential in the conservative legal movement, especially now, um, he takes a different under he has a different view of uh, originalism and the Constitution than, say, Scalia or Bork did, uh, or a lot of the early originalists did. And one of the things that's distinctive about his theory is, as you mentioned he's coming at this with certain political uh, philosophical assumptions about the nature of society. Uh, and one of those is that each individual is sovereign, an individual sovereign. And therefore, to exercise any uh, force on that individual, to bind that individual to something 
would either require that individual's consent or uh, would require that whatever you're binding that individual to is necessary to protect other individuals and is proper insofar as it doesn't uh, invade any of the rights of that individual that they already possess. That's how he thinks about this. And he, and you might think, well, uh, well, right, there was consent at the founding, and so we ratified the Constitution, but Barnett actually rejects that. He says, no, uh, when we say consent, because each individual is a sovereign, we really mean every single person has to agree to this, or else they should not be bound by it. Right. There's no such thing as collective consent mm. uh, in, in his view. Mm. Um, and that's why he proposes this second route to legitimizing the Constitution, which is this necessary and proper mm. route, uh, what I call, I think, in the paper, like a harmless error yep. uh, argument, which is basically to say, like, look, if uh, you might have thought that you uh, legitimized the Constitution through consent, but you really didn't, but it's a harmless error because, in fact, the Constitution uh, doesn't uh, invade any rights that uh, you retained as an individual sovereign and the restrictions it puts in place are necessary to protect others, uh, at least as the Constitution was originally understood. Well, if, if that's true, then it becomes essential to preserve the original understanding of the Constitution because uh, it's only that original understanding that Professor Barnett thinks meets these criteria to make it legitimate apart from consent. And if you start messing with that, uh, you could quickly lead to a situation where uh, the the government really is invading rights that he thinks uh, the individual sovereign retained. Right. So, because it is so good, it is legitimate. In 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 a sense, yes. I mean, in in the sense that he 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 is uh, saying that the Constitution is legitimate due to its substantive uh, features, not because of some process it went through, right? Mm. He, th that is his, uh, what I called the harmless error mm. uh, way of legitimizing uh, the Constitution. It's very interesting. Mm. Thanks. Right. And so it seems like one of the implications of this is that um, to protect what uh, Professor Burnett views as that original meaning, it requires a more activist judiciary to protect those individual rights that he thinks are part of that original meaning. Uh, but it seems like you're uncomfortable with that. Could you elaborate on that debate a little bit? Well, <clears throat> I think he would. Uh, so first, I would say that I think he would push back on the idea that it's <laughs> an activist. In fact, he has a little bit. Right. He would. He would not agree that it's an activist judiciary. Or at least, mm. uh, I think he would say he would have a different word for that, mm. um, and and say that really they're just doing what they should be doing. Um, Fair. But uh, but obviously, I disagree. Uh, in <laughs> in that uh, he because he has this view of the individual sovereign, and he understands society in this way. That is a very presentist uh, understanding of society, right? It's, it's an understanding of society that accepts the dead hand argument. It says the past cannot bind the present uh, because each of us is an individual sovereign, and so unless we've affirmatively consented, um, you, you cannot bind me. Um, he has this, as I said, other approach to legitimizing the Constitution, uh, but based on the substance of the Constitution, uh, but notice that, again, who's the one making that evaluation? It's, it's you, the individual sovereign, who's deciding that this constitution meets, enough, meets the, the substantive criteria so that uh, you can allow yourself to be bound by it. There, there's no, in other words, there's nothing in his theory that allows for the idea that even if you did not consent to this and even if 
uh, you think there are problems with it, uh, significant problems with it, you're nonetheless bound by it because uh, of these obligations um, between generations. Um, and because of that orientation of his theory, it, he has features of it that lead to uh, a prioritization of the present over, uh, over the past. One of those is this uh, feature that he, that he calls uh, the presumption of liberty. And the presumption of liberty is essentially a presumption of unconstitutionality. It's basically saying that um, when a statute, for example, just to make it easier, if a statute were uh, challenged on constitutional grounds, it would be uh, the burden of the government to prove that that statute was constitutional. Mm. Right? So it's essentially presuming unconstitutionality. Mm. Mm. Right. Um, and my point was, was just to say that, well, that's, that's really empowering the present generation, the current judge, to, uh, to presume a lack of obligation to obey something that was enacted in the past. It is presuming uh, against the authority of the past. Um, and of course, Professor Barnett doesn't present it that way, um, but I think that is kind of the implication of it. Mm. And, it and it makes absolute sense given his, the political philosophical foundations that he comes to mm. constitu constitutional theory with, right? Um, but that, uh, that orientation is exactly the orientation of living constitutionalism, is to elevate uh, the ideas and the concerns of the present over those of the past to be hostile to uh, the binding authority of the past and to uh, uh, chafe against those constraints and want to liberate the present from the past. Um, you also, you noted that Barnett champions the importance of the Constitution's writtenness um, and talk about how um, Barnett said that to accept any meaning contrary to the Constitution's original meaning would be to contradict or change the meaning of the text and thereby undermine the value of writtenness itself. Um, so how does that portion of his thought um, accept the dead hand argument? Well, I think it accepts it because, <clears throat> excuse me, because he's, um, again, the reason why we need to preserve the writtenness of the Constitution from that framework is simply because I, the individual sovereign, want to preserve these values in the Constitution and these procedures in the Constitution with which I agree, mm. <laughs> right? Uh, the, 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 these procedures, these values are just in my view, and uh, they are written, and so we need to interpret this written document uh, as it was understood uh, originally in order to preserve exactly those uh, features of it that I'm basing the legitimacy of the Constitution on, right? So in that way, it's accepting the dead hand argument. I, d I do wanna say, though, that in, in Professor Barnett's defense on, on this point, that his arguments about the, the writtenness of the Constitution um, I think are actually quite powerful, um, apart from the dead hand argument point, um, in that he, he tries to draw out uh, just how corrosive it is once you depart from the original meaning of the text to the very idea of writing something down. Mm -hmm. Like the whole idea of writing something down is to project Preserve into the future, it. right, um, uh, certain ideas and, uh, and certain principles and so it, it makes nonsense of writing something down to say, well, we're just going to interpret this to mean whatever we today think it means. Um, 
And that argument that Professor Barnett makes in uh, his in his scholarship, I think, is is quite powerful and, and well taken. Yeah. Great. And so just one last question on Professor Burnett. We don't want to beat him down too much. Um, no, not at all. No, I, 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 no, I, I, should, favor I should say that, uh, you know, Professor Barnett uh, has, has, you know, always been a very, uh, uh, very kind, you know, scholar to, to, to young scholars like myself. So I, I certainly do not want to, uh, you know, <laughs> give off the impression that I'm trying to. to it's a respectful but, debate, a civil debate. Yeah. Um, you guys did have a bit of a back and forth in the Washington Post uh, online about this. And. Uh, he sort of contended that there's just a narrow disagreement between your two views, but I think you were still maintaining that there's a foundational disagreement um, in what you quoted as uh, rooted in different conceptions of man and his relationship to society. And so, and also you, you note kind of at the end of your response that um, Professor Barnett's very influential uh, in originalism and for, for young legal conservatives. So um, this, this debate has some stakes for the future of legal conservatism. So could you kind of speak to um, what this means for the future of originalism? Sure. So I, I think it's uh, in some, in a sense, admirable that Professor Barnett, in his response to my essay, downplays his own influence as much as he as he does. Uh, but it's just not in accord with reality. The reality is that Professor Barnett is tremendously influential in the conservative legal movement, especially among younger conservatives, um, and therefore, uh, what he says about originalism, I think, does matter and. Uh, to the extent that he is introducing ideas that I view as corrosive of originalism, as undermining um, originalism in the long term, certainly not intentionally so from his perspective, um, but in my view nonetheless, doing having that effect, then it's important to point that out and to argue that those ideas should be rejected. Well, I'll have one more question about Barnett. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Uh, would you say, do you have a feeling for which of these two competing versions of originalism is closer to the mainstream or how peop what people view as the mainstream? Which two competing versions? Barnett's or yours? Or people who you would consider to be closer to you? I, I think that... Uh, so I think probably the, the best way to to set this out would be to compare Barnett with, say, Justice Scalia's view, right? Because I, I think that uh, Barnett departs from Scalia in some important ways, which he himself acknowledges. He has a, a, a famous uh, essay in which he attacks Justice Scalia's jurisprudence um, on originalism in particular. Uh, but I think that uh, in some ways, just by saying that, I've already answered the question, right. right? Like, Like Justice Scalia's view is obviously the more influential one among um, uh, the general public. Uh, and I think that if if the general public were explained certain features of Professor Barnett's view, I think that there would probably be a lot of pushback. Sure. And so let's talk about um, one other originalist thinker who you say kind of advocates a novel form of originalism that actually could be more like uh, living constitutionalism, uh, Yale professor Jack Balkin. Uh, and so uh, it seems like looking at his theory is that you can interpret different parts of the Constitution in different ways. One kind of more of an originalist way for some of the more uh, specific provisions, and then more of a living constitutionalist way for the broader provisions. Can you talk a little bit about um, his view of originalism? Sure. So Professor Balkin, uh, who's at Yale Law School, um, has throughout his career been very much identified with the legal left. And he, only in the middle of the last decade, came forward to say that he was an originalist and started developing a, a series of arguments as to how living constitutionalism and originalism can be 
reconciled uh, in what he calls living originalism. <laughs> and uh, paradoxical. Well, I, I, nice combo. It, it's an impress you know, it's an impressive mm. scholarly effort mm. because, uh, you know, to, to say that these two things that are viewed as antithetical to each other are actually in harmony with each other. He argues that uh, the the original meaning of the Constitution actually does not resolve very much. I mean, it, it resolves. Uh, some things that are very clear in the text, like you know, there are two senators per state, right? That's the, that's very straightforward. Um, so if there were ever a controversy over how many senators there are per state, uh, well, the the text of the Constitution would decisively resolve that, mm -hmm. and there's no need to say anything beyond just pointing to the text. Um, but he he takes the view that that's actually quite unusual in our constitutional structure, and that most of the uh, provisions that uh, come up in constitutional adjudication are not quite so definite. And he thinks that insofar as they leave room for uh, uh, interpreters to, to fill that vacuum, that process calls for living constitutionalism. Mm -hmm. uh, so if a, if a particular provision, for example, is vague, uh, so we know what the core meaning of this provision is, but we don't quite know how uh, it applies to a peripheral case, uh, set of facts that are kind of on the periphery of that core meaning, uh, or outside that core meaning on the periphery of what might be entailed by the, the vague clause. Uh, he would say, well, in that kind of situation, uh, you, would, you would bring living constitutionalism uh, to bear. Mm -hmm. um, but precisely because he views that as the predominant situation, then what you end up with is a predominantly living constitutionalist constitution. Sure, sure. Um, you noted that Balkan distinguished between, quote, the dead hand of the past in general, um, which he says he's willing to accept, um, and, quote, the imposition of a dead hand of the past, which he opposes. Um, is that more or less similar to the distinctions that you were making just now between the more general phrases in the Constitution and the more specific terms? I, I think that is the the what he's trying to get at there. Although it's it's I can't I can't say for certain if that is the distinction he's drawing. But um, he does say that he's willing to accept right that there are some things that you are bound by, uh, and so it says two senators you are bound by that mm -hmm. right. Um, the reason I think that that project doesn't succeed and 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 why it it, it doesn't hold up is that he justifies. The Constitution. He he legitimates the Constitution based on his idea that the Constitution has to reflect how the how the people uh, it has to reflect the people's values. Um, so the it has to be quote unquote their Constitution, you know, our Constitution. Um, and insofar as the Constitution uh, departs from how the people uh, understand their society, understand themselves. Uh, and their own project of self-governance, uh, it becomes illegitimate. Uh, well, if that's how you understand constitutional legitimacy as being in line with how the current generation views itself and views views self-governance, uh, uh, self-governance, uh, then it's really hard to reconcile that with any limitations on that that come from the past, just because they come from the past. Mm -hmm. Right, like the 
if if they uh, if they want to have two senators per state, if, if today's people want to have two senators per state, then maybe they accept that provision of the Constitution. But it has nothing to do with the dead hand mm-hmm. or intergenerational partnership of the living and the dead, right? It just has to do with the fact that we like it, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's almost as if we wrote it into the Constitution, right? Right. 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 Um, and so it's a way that, of keeping up. Right. So, so my, my, but my point is like, well, what if the current generation just strongly disagrees with that? I mean, there's a much, yeah. there's a lot of debate right now about that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, many Absolutely. people on the left are are uh, are attacking features of the Constitution right. that uh, that Balkan I think would acknowledge are kind of hardwired and you can't depart from mm-hmm. two senators per state, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. the electoral yeah. college. Yep. Um, you know, these are features that are under attack right now, rightly or wrongly. Um, but my point is that if you uh, if you disagree with that, if if the vast majority of people today disagreed with those features, under Balkan's theory, I have a hard time seeing why they are supposed to obey them. Um, why are they legitimate? Right. Right. And I mean, it seems like a lot of these debates about originalism are boiling down to um, can the Constitution keep up with society's values and as they change. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Joel. Your response would be they can through the legislature. Uh, that is, you know, elected by the people. They can pass new laws to keep up with changing conditions and values. Is that right, or would you characterize that differently? Or I think that's right. I would, I would only add to that the amendment process, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. certainly, um, you know, I, I said earlier in in our recording that uh, the Constitution, as originally understood, significantly constrains those living today, and it does in that uh, it puts forward a whole host of. Uh, procedures of substantive prohibitions, uh, obligations that otherwise just wouldn't exist at all, right? So though that is a significant constraint in that sense. Um, but uh, the Constitution, as originally understood, nonetheless leaves a lot to the democratic process sure. to uh, to keep society in line with uh, the times, um, as as many people would would say. Um, um, I w- I would think that. Insofar as you thought that the uh, the Constitution prohibited and constrained uh, the legislature f- from mm. doing that in a way that really was uh, a problem, well, then you just amend the Constitution, <laughs> um, and the, there's a process for doing that, and you just sure. go through that process. Sure, absolutely. All right, um, bit of a takeaway. Um, why do you feel it's so important for the conservative legal movement to remain committed to originalism, uh, to defend the dead hand? while rejecting the novel forms of originalism that could subvert the movement itself? Um, and what do you think it will take for the legal movement to continue defending it? Well, I think this goes back to um, the first question you asked me. You know, why am I an originalist? Uh, why is it important to defend originalism? Uh, for the same reasons, in that uh, originalism uh, gets at foundational questions of why the Constitution is legitimate. Why is authority, especially judicial authority, legitimate? Um, and insofar as originalism uh, breaks down or loses its coherence or uh, ex- takes on board premises that are really antithetical to um, its continuing validity, uh, then that larger project of uh, self-government, that larger project of um, American constitutionalism is threatened, um, and not in some sort of direct way. It's not like there's a coup or something like that. But like, <laughs> um, but it does. It does matter how 
courts and judges, how legislators, how individual citizens think about the Constitution, and to the extent that they take on board uh, the idea that we owe no obligations to those who came before us and we're all just individual sovereigns, uh, then I think that that is corrosive to the long-term viability of the constitutional project. Sure. Uh, and just a final question, Joel. Uh, you know, if you look at the Supreme Court right now, uh, you could argue that originalism is doing quite well. Now, we could you know, have disagreements about, um, you know, these conservative justices disagree from things on time to time, maybe have different views of originalism. But you look at Justice Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, there's kind of a majority of, of legal conservatives, you might say. Uh, do you think that bodes well for originalism or are there other challenges that will emerge down the road? Well, it certainly bodes well insofar as um, those justices have all shown uh, a uh, a willingness to be guided by originalism to some degree. I mean, some of those more than others. Um, I think it's it's it bodes well also in that there are very interesting disagreements among those justices yeah. about originalism mm -hmm. and about uh, adjudication generally. Uh, constitutional adjudication generally. And um, I think we will see in the ensuing years those interesting divisions come out. Um, and I think that that shows the, the vibrancy and the health of the conservative legal movement generally, that they don't just lock, uh, you know, march in lockstep. These justices actually do bring their own individual views to bear on constitutional adjudication. And uh, that can lead to divergent outcomes, even in some very important uh, cases, uh, because they actually stick to those principles uh, when they, when it carries them in different directions. Um, so I think that that is in, that that those divisions, which I'm sure will be played up in the future as you know fractured court or you know uh, uh, conservative majority in disarray. I'm sure that those sort of headlines will greet those moments when they come. But uh, in some, but I think it's important to remember that, uh, in in a way, that shows the intellectual vibrancy and health of that side of the court. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was really fantastic. Um, and now we are going to do a little bit of an over under portion in which we're going to throw out a few topics and fun. see what see whether you think they're overrated or underrated. Okay. So, Dan, would you like to begin? Yeah, of course. Uh, so first one, Joel, uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices has come up recently. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, I would say underrated in the sense that I think that uh, that idea will probably have a lot more appeal than people are uh, giving it credit for, hmm. um, in the same way that term limits for legislators had a lot more appeal than people probably anticipated in the sure. 90s. Interesting, sure. interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, televised confirm confirmation hearings. Uh, overrated. Uh, the, 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 I mean, at this point, I think we've gotten to the point where uh, they are just uh, not serving as useful a substantive function. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, you know, there, there's, there's an argument to going back to, a, to an era where we just didn't have televised. Simpler uh, time. Simpler yeah. time. Well, that ain't all of us. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, and finally, Joel, um, we're calling the Supreme Court fan clubs, but I think it's like judges as celebrities. I'm thinking of uh, how much progressives love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm also thinking of how much libertarians like Neil Gorsuch, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that a is that an overrated or underrated thing for the Supreme Court going forward? Um, 
so I think it's probably underrated in that um, I think uh, we will see more of that. Hmm. Uh, these these justices are just more visible now, hmm. uh, both because of differences in technology and media, um, but also in part because of the last question you just asked. You know, the confirmation hearings uh, for Justice Gorsuch uh, certainly played a big role in his hmm. current um, prominence. Hmm. Um, and obviously the, the, the debates that happened nationally about the Supreme Court uh, and the seat that he eventually filled um, played a big role in that as well. But um, I, I think these the sort of, as, as what you refer to as these cults of, of different justices, <laughs> right. um, I think that we will probably see more of that uh, in the future uh, as these justices play a bigger public role than they did uh, in an era where uh, uh, they, they had relative anonymity. Uh, well, thanks again, Joel, for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, if you'd like to read Joel's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>